fantastic. He did it all. He did it all. You know, if you were broken or you got some tears, he did it all. Thinking of you, he, the, he came and he went to the cross and he paid the price. Jesus did it all. That, and that word, let that word all sink in because that's from the start to the finish. That's all, all. And, you know, I was reminded of uh, the, that well, Jesus did it all. Our God does it all. When Pastor Noah was up here and he opened with Psalm 103, says it all too. The, the opening lines of that psalm, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are his benefits? He forgives us of all of our iniquities. He heals us of all of our diseases. He pulls our life from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouth with good things and renews our youth like the eagles. What more? I mean, that is all. This is what God does for uh, humankind. And I want to talk about that this morning. Where do I begin? How do I start? I come up here most every Sunday. Not every Sunday. I'm glad we have some excellent uh, pastors here who come up from time to time to preach. But most Sundays I come up here. How do I start? The start draws people in, gets your attention. There's been some great starts with things that have uh, been written. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Call me Ishmael. In the late summer of that year, we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains. It was love at first sight. The old man was dreaming about the lions. And how about this for a start? It was a bright, cold day in April. And the clocks were striking 13. Now those were some famous first phrases or sentences from well-known authors. Great starts. Perhaps you recognized one or two or maybe you, maybe you recognized all of them. They came from people like Charles Dickens and Jane Austen and Herman Melville and Hemingway and others and those were in some of their books, books that have become classics like A Tale of Two Cities and Moby Dick and Pride and Prejudice, The Old Man and the Sea, 1984, George Orwell, and others, some of few others I mentioned. Each one of those novels, each one of those had its own plot and its own characters. And they all began pretty much the same way. The author. The author had a thought. 
an idea, a desire to influence the reader. And along with that idea, a blank sheet of paper. It was blank until, until that first word was laid down. And then the next and the next, and the words began to pile up into sentences, and sentences became paragraphs, and paragraphs became chapters, and the chapters came together to form the volume. And, and, that, and that developed the characters through that, through that volume, and the, the characters unfolded a plot. And all of that was conceived in the mind of the author. The author, the author imagined and envisioned, uh, then initiated and invented with words and produced a book, a volume. Here's another famous opening line from a great author. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's the opening line from the world's most sold and distributed book ever, the Bible. The Bible, which is, it's estimated that the Bible has been printed over five billion times. All those other authors I mentioned, they don't hold a candle to this, which has that memorable opening line by the author of authors, the best, our God, in the beginning. In the beginning, God took the initiative. He exercised his divine creativity and his imagination. And he had, he had less than a sheet of paper. He didn't have a sheet of paper. What did God do? With nothing but God's command. He spoke the universe and all that we know into existence from nothing, something. There's no other author that can say that. They all start with something, something from their life, their past, their education, their experience. They've written notes or diaries. They have journals. They get inspired, and then they start to write they put paper, they got paper, they put ink on paper. Nowadays, they've got devices, it's digital and keyboards. They can talk to them, whatever. But every author, even with only a blank sheet of paper, that's something, that's something. God is the only author who, he began with nothing. And he produced something immensely incredible. Now, of course, creating something from nothing as only God has done, that, that just stretches our mind, doesn't it? Stretches our comprehension. It kind of stresses our mind. It always elicits questions. Like this question. If God created us, well, who created God? Now that can get into infinite regression. I don't want to go there. I, I like how a guy named John Lennox answered this. He's a professor of mathematics at uh, Oxford University and a Christian, and this is how he put it. 
The universe came to be. God did not. I love that. The universe is a creation. You are a creation. I am a creation. We are creatures. We have been created. God was not created. He's eternal. And the eternal one took it upon himself to create. I liken it to being like an author or a designer builder who imagines and visions and initiates and invents. God did that. And it's recorded for us in this book, his book, the book of books, the Bible. And the Bible gives us God's plan. Did you catch the the lyrics to that song that Michael sung? I've read the words, read the words and read. I've read his plan. See, the, the Bible gives us God's plan, his vision, his mission. Characters are presented and developed, and and a plot unfolds. It gives us an account of humankind and how humankind, the created ones, turned against their creator in stubborn, rebellious disobedience. How a man and a woman were in a close, close personal relationship with God, and that relationship was fractured, broken, tears. A relationship shattered so tragically that it resulted in their dying, death, because of sin. They turned against their creator. But God's volume... God's volume unfolds a plan for redemption, his plan. Even in a broken state where sin is still rampant, God offered a way to life. Where death prevailed, God offered a way to life, life forever, life after death. And that redemption comes by God. God And this one really, again, it stretches the comprehension. That redemption comes by God who became one of the created. It's amazing. He became a man, Jesus. He took on what he created. He is man, Jesus, and he is God. Here's another, another great opening line. A few lines, actually. From the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Are you catching it? He's creator. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, this world of sin. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. God, the author of this fantastic, amazing redemption account, refers to himself, Jesus, as the Word. God didn't just write words. He didn't just say words. He became the living Word. The living word of promise. Promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This promise of redemption. 
God came to earth as Jesus. Jesus on earth had a perfect relationship with God. He never sinned. He never sinned. And yet, he received the same fate as rebellious mankind. But he received it in a very, very harsh and painful way. Jesus, the sinless one, he died like a sinner, but harshly on a Roman cross, nailed to it. And this is the point in the plot of God's book where there's this climax. Jesus had declared, if you believe, I take on your sin and die for you. God will release you from the death penalty of sin. Now, this is why we can baptize people and say, we baptize you for the remission of your sin because of Jesus. And we sung about this at the cross, at the cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, Jesus did it. And this is this this climactic scene in in his book, in his plan, in his volume. And if you believe it, he says, I'll release you from that death penalty of sin. You'll be born again. It will be as if you'll be born again. Psalm 103 says, your youth will be renewed like the eagles. How much better is it to just say you're born again? That's going back to brand new. And that's why, again, when we baptize, we can say, rise to walk in newness of life. You're, you are brand new. You need to have the faith to believe it. You need to have the faith to believe it. Because once you're born again, you're still in this world. You're still in this world steeped in evil and sin brokenness, it's shattered because of evil and sin. So the book didn't stop. The book didn't stop. The author continued on. We have what we call the New Testament, and it brings encouragement and assurance that though you, Christian, born again, come to Christ, you received what he did at the cross, you still experience times that try you and they vex you. The book, the volume, it gives you assurance. You can keep the faith. You can. Now, one such passage that gives this encouragement and this insurance, it's the letter to the Hebrew Christians. It's a, it's a letter that has, I think it has the best opening line of the, all the letters in the New Testament. Because it doesn't say, dear church, It's got this just stunning open line, opening line. Uh, Don't even see it coming because the author just jumps right into it. God who had sundry times and in diverse manners spoken times past unto the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoke to us by his son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things by whom also he has created the worlds or the universe This is another reference. This is another just fantastic, rich opening line that tells us Jesus is creator, the creator of the universe. 
And then the, the letter to the Hebrews goes on to expound on the greatness of Jesus. Chapter after chapter, how wonderful and great Jesus is. And it reflects then on the forerunners of the faith. The opening line calls them the fathers. The forerunners of the faith. Well, they didn't have Jesus. They came before Jesus. And the letter reflects on their hardships and their pain the endurance of the fathers of the faith and the trials that they, they endured, yet while believing in God and looking forward to his promise, the promised redeemer. The letter tells us how they kept the faith while the world around them was steeped in sin and they were looking forward to the promised redeemer. They hadn't tasted what it was like to have the redeemer come. They were only looking forward to the promised redeemer, those forerunners, those fathers of the faith. And after reflecting on their outstanding faith and how they were steadfast and immovable, the writer wrote these lines. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's told all about the forerunners of the faith, how they kept the faith. And he wrote, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's those forerunners, those who went before us looking to the promise, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus, who is God. He's referred to here as the author of our faith. And faith here. It can be taken in this passage in the objective sense. I spoke about this briefly last week from the letter of Jude regarding contending for the faith or keeping our most holy faith. Faith objectively in the sense of being all that we believe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From that point, from the opening line to that same Jesus who has been taken up into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. That was angels speaking to those who'd witnessed Christ's ascension. He's coming back from in the beginning to his ultimate return, from creation to the the coming of Christ the first time and all that he did to win us eternal life. And he despised the shame of the cross. And then he rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God and he promises to return. That is, there's, that's all. There's the all of our faith. This is, this is the faith Jesus is the author of. From start to finish, the alpha to the omega. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, th th this term faith has this sense. And in the original text, it's preceded by a definite article. Instead of our, the, the, the pronoun, 
it could be rendered the faith, which is the way a, a number of the English Bibles translate the passage. Jesus is the author of the faith. He conceived it. He envisioned it. He put together this great plan of redemption. And then he wrote himself into the plot. He wrote himself into that, that he would, would be the one. Now, he's the divine mind behind it. No man or woman dreamt this up. Uh-uh. Jesus is the author. He is the author. And some Greek or, or some English Bibles render this Greek word for author Jesus is the initiator of the faith, the maker of the faith, the founder of the faith, the originator of the faith, and I love this one, the one who designed the faith. Our God, Jesus, he conceived the solution to the sin problem. He planned it, he designed it, wrote himself into it, and he became the solution Man, it's just an, an amazing, an amazing thing. No man or woman dreamt this thing up. Only God. Only God. And this passage to the Hebrews, it, it speaks to this. Jesus is the author of the faith. And yet, the passage openly admits that as Christians, one of, ones who've come to the cross, born again, as Christians, we can be weighted down, ensnared by sin. This is a letter to Hebrew Christians. Lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares you in every weight. And what does it, what does it do? Does it leave us hanging there? No, it advises and gives some helpful advice. So what do you do when that happens? Look unto Jesus. Fix your eyes on the brilliant genius who conceived up the redemption plan. He designed it. He brought it about. Look to the author of it all. When an ensnaring situation has you wrapped up, you best look beyond your own resources. You best look beyond your own self. You best look beyond the, the solution the world might have to offer and seek the author of the faith, the one who wrote it all. I want to give you an illustration. Consider a man named Edward John Smith. He was a British Naval Reserve officer and the captain of many, many passenger steamships during his day. He was employed by a company called the White Star Line, and in 1904, he served as the captain for one of their newest steamships on its maiden voyage, the RMS Baltic. Then in 1907, he took, again, a brand new ship, the Adriatic, on its first ever voyage. In 1911, he captained the biggest and most luxurious ship to date on its maiden voyage, the Olympic. He was a trusted and a cautious captain. So in 1912, when the White Star Line launched 
Titanic, they once again tapped Captain E.J. Smith. Many of us, most of us are probably familiar with the story. The Titanic left Southampton, England, April 10th, 1912. Around noon, stopped in France and Ireland. It had 2,240 passengers on, and crew on board as it left Ireland to make its way to New York. After sailing just about 2,000 miles, on April 14, at 11.40 ship time, while Captain Smith was asleep in his quarters, one of the Titanic's lookouts spotted an iceberg dead ahead. He rang the bell. He called the bridge. The engines were reversed, and the ship was turned as sharp as possible And it seemed that it had avoided a disaster. It seemed to have only grazed this iceberg. Most didn't even feel it. The lookouts gave a sigh of relief. But Captain Smith felt something. He he made his way to the bridge. He wasn't overly concerned. Having sailed some of the best and most modern ships of the day, he felt the Titanic was nearly unsinkable. However, when he arrived on the bridge, reports were already coming in. The ship was taking on water. What is the captain to do? What did he do? He called on a passenger, Thomas Andrews. Andrews was in his first class cabin and he was looking over notes and blueprints, considering how he might improve the Titanic. He barely noticed the brush with the iceberg, but then came a summons to the bridge. Thomas Andrews was called to the bridge because he was the managing director of Harland and Wolf Shipbuilding Company. They were the builders of the Titanic and the Olympic and the Baltic and the Adriatic. Andrews led the design department. He was the chief the chief of what they called the drafting department. He would probably today be called the chief engineer or the chief designer. He oversaw all the plans for the Olympic Titanic. He was intimately aware of the design. He knew every detail. He had had been on the maiden voyages of the three other ships, taking notes, and... Here he was now taking notes on Titanic. He he was the one Captain Smith turned to, the chief designer, the one who conceived the ship and then planned it and built it. He knew it from stem to stern. Andrews and Smith went for a quick tour. And Andrews told Captain Smith, five compartments are taken on water. Captain, the ship was designed to only withstand four compartments filling with water. So Thomas Andrews told Captain Smith, well, maybe we got an hour and a half, two hours before the ship founders. And despite the bad news, Smith knew he could count on it. He heard it from the source, the author, the designer, the planner, the builder of the ship. And had Smith just relied on his own thinking, 
Oh, the ship is nearly unsinkable. Let's just keep on going. He might have made different decisions. And it, it would have resulted in a far greater catastrophe. So when you have a titanic moment in your life, you know, something that stuns you, and it's out of the blue, an incident, perhaps you didn't really even notice at first, but then suddenly it's starting to take on some real fierce weight on you. You feel like you're sinking. Or maybe something just hits you really hard, like a, like a, like a wave coming out, out of nowhere. It's just a catastrophe that's got you from the jump. Or you know, you've been ensnared. You're entangled in some kind of sin. It's weighing you down. Now, you can try to fix it yourself. Many do. You could turn to metaphorical bilge pumps and start bailing, and you could lean on your own capabilities and lean on your own understanding. You could look to the world for solutions, or you could look to the chief engineer the initiator, the maker, the founder, the originator, the one who designed the faith. Now, his name is Jesus. And our author has told us that his coming to earth brought something that we could not accomplish ourselves. It brought a way to be reunited with our creator. But Jesus' time on earth offers more than that. It's, uh, it's just so amazing because he loved us and he loved us so much. And he thought of us in this, this great plan and design of his. It's why we need to look to him when things are heavy and we're ensnared. And it doesn't mean there's going to be this instantaneous solution. But it means we're looking to the source of our solution. Jesus came to more than just give his life. He came to offer help while we're here and we get ensnared. Let me offer you this again from the, the great letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter two, verse 18. For in that Jesus, he himself suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Wow, thank you, thank you. Jesus didn't just die for us. He's here when we, get, when we get tempted because he was. And how about this, Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest. And the priest was the one who was supposed to stand in the gap between God and man. Now it's Jesus. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Man, Jesus conceived a plan to, to put himself in the very place where we are when we're tempted. That, that is great news for us. He was in all points tempted. That's how much he loved us. He, well, he didn't come just to say, okay, I'll die for you. No, he lived on this earth and he took on all the 
same kind of craziness we got to deal with. And he can sympathize with our human weaknesses. Jesus understands the snares that get you. He understands the traps that take us down. The tempting of the devil. He was tempted himself. He experienced it. He's been there. He's been there. The only difference is he did not sin. We can say been there, done that. Jesus just been there. He's our perfect model because he didn't sin. He's the perfect model of obedience and faithfulness to God the Father, but he knows. He knows the pull of the tempter. He knows the tricks of the liar. He understands the weight of it all. He experienced in his life here on earth his fair share of relational problems and disputes and troubles that this life brings. See, what you're dealing with is nothing new to him. He, he wrote the redemption plan, and he came here to understand what occurred to rebellious, disobedient mankind. What you're dealing with is nothing new. So, will you take the advice of Hebrews chapter 2? Will you look to him, the author of the faith? Will you look to him, the author of it all? to empower you, to advise you, to carry you, to help you, that you could lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares? Or will you look to yourself and the solutions of the world? That's only going to lead to greater catastrophe. Remember the opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That same God who created and saw evil come into the world, and he saw the world lost, and he saw we have struggles and pain and brokenness because of it. Well, he authored and he designed the way of rescue and the way of help in this life, the faith. From A to Z, Alpha to Omega, start to finish, the whole of it all, Jesus authored it, the very word of God. He's been there. He felt the struggles, the pain, the brokenness. He ultimately gave his life. So I just want to ask you, will you look to the author this morning? Will you make that your, your heart today? Let's stand and pray as we close. And if this isn't something you've truly done, ever invited the author of life into your heart, and said, you know, forgive me, God, forgive me. He will. He will. He's offered this great way to redemption because he gave his life. And if you're dealing with something weighing you down, you've gotten snarled, ensnared, something's trapped you, oh, look to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you were tempted. Help me. Carry me through this storm of life. He will. He will just... Be genuine in your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus and this great, great design. This great design that, that's been authored by him and he, and he even stepped right into it. Thank you for that. Thank you. Designed by no man, only the divine mind of God. We thank you. We praise you for it. You are a wonderful, wonderful God. And we pray, God, this morning, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room 
who's never really seen that, understood, well, God, you came here and you took on what I took on, the brokenness and the pain and the, the sorrow, and you died. You died for the rebellion of disobedience and sin that you never committed. You did that for me so I wouldn't have to go through it and I can have life forever. God, if there's someone realizing that for the first time, Lord, I just pray you'd set your Holy Spirit right on them right now and, and, and just make that so, so genuine and real in their heart that they would be born again and never look back. God, that they would just turn their life to you and say, I, I want to repent of that sin and lay it aside and put it behind me and, 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 and offer my life to Jesus who forgives and, and he paid the price. Thank you for that, God. And we just pray, Lord, for everyone here or within my listening voice who may have been ensnared or tempted or pulled or fell in a trap of the, the, the wicked one. And God, I pray your help, your help to get them out. Uh, Psalm 103 tells us you relieve our lives from destruction. Lord, I pray you'd lift a Show them the way out from that destruction. It might not be instantaneous, but show them the, the next right step, Jesus, because you can, you understand, you've been here, you sympathize with our human weaknesses. Oh, I pray, Lord, you'd give strength and you'd give hope and you would just set your spirit on, on, on anyone who needs that this morning. Father, May, may every heart leave here encouraged and lifted because they're looking to the author of the faith. Thank you for it, God. We pray it all, Father, in the name of Jesus, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, the designer of it all. Amen. Amen. These altars are always open for you. If you need prayer, you don't need to rush out. You can come and receive prayer, receive anointing from the elders. And I just ask that you would leave that kind of quiet here in the front as you, as you exit the sanctuary. God